everybody to this brand new podcast, It's a Crazy Life. My name's Sarah and I'm just a crazy lady on a mission to motivate, educate and inspire you on your very own journey to become the best version of yourself. What's happening everybody and welcome back to the It's a Crazy Life podcast. As always, I'm Sarah and I am your host. As you know, this week I am interviewing the amazing Pete Martin again from Redditch Self-Defence and Youth Engagement Group. But this time we're going to be talking PTSD. This interview is a mammoth of a show, so I've decided that I'm going to split it into two parts. Today we're going to hear how Pete came to have PTSD and how it actually affected his life. People then also share a brilliant tool to help us manage our anxiety or levels of panic. Next week, you'll hear the rest of the interview with more incredible words of wisdom from Pete. So let's get into it, guys. Let's hear what Pete has to say about PTSD. So Pete, welcome back to the It's a Crazy Life podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be back, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me. No problem at all. Um, I think after last time and your wealth of knowledge, this is going to be just as great. Let's dive on in. So Pete, tell us, in your professional opinion, what is post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD? PTSD is um, quite a serious mental health issue. Being in fear, really any kind of trauma. I was going to say severe trauma. But what's your trauma is not my trauma. Yes. So what you find traumatic, I may not. Yes. What I find traumatic, you may not. Yeah. So everyone's levels of what, you know, they can comprehend and accept is different. But it's basically anybody that experiences some kind of trauma in their lives and it has an effect on their mental health. Originally, it's had various names over the years. Years ago, it used to be called shell shock. Oh, yes. Because it was very much associated with war veterans and people in the military. Right. And at one point, it was believed that they were the only people affected. Yeah. But that's not the case, you know. I mean, anybody that experiences trauma can have PTSD, whether it's a violent incident or whether it's something that's happened in childbirth. There's lots of different reasons you can experience trauma. So for a lot of people, it's a relatively new concept. A lot of people have still not heard of it. Uh, As regards PTSD with violence, which is where my main field is, the early research was in the sort of early 90s. And most of that was specialised and concentrated on rape victims and the trauma of rape victims. So a lot of the early research in the self-defence work was sort of done on that side. So it's still little known with some people. It can be quite complex, you know, so I don't certainly don't put myself up as any kind of expert on PTSD or some kind of a guru. I don't like that concept anyway, because if you put yourself up as an expert or a guru, to me, it's just another form of victimising people because you're saying, I'm the expert, this is what I think, this is what you should do, and life's not like that, because everybody's different, aren't they? Definitely. (laughs) So all I can do, really, is just tell people about my experiences, what worked for me, what happened to me, and they may or may not be able to take some of that on board, and it, it may help them move forward. Yes. That's it, really. That's, you know, all I offer. That's all we uh, want. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's a serious medical health problem, though, that can, if not treated, can lead to very, very serious consequences. So that, in a nutshell, is what PTSD is. Right. The symptoms can can vary. There can be many sort of symptoms of PTSD. One of the reasons why it was, um, it went undiagnosed in a lot of people, especially in the early days, it gets very confused with depression. Okay. Yeah, because a lot of the symptoms of PTSD are very similar to depression. So some people who were or, or still diagnosed with depression are actually suffering from PTSD. Right. 
Yeah. yeah. So because a lot of the symptoms interlink, it can be quite difficult to get a definitive PTSD diagnosis, particularly if you're not getting any of the main signals, like um, if you're having flashbacks and things like that. Yeah. yeah. That's quite a big guide, isn't it? Yes. Some people don't have flashbacks. No, they don't. <laughs> that's simple, unfortunately. Right. So, so that's PTSD in a nutshell. Okay, thank you. So it's 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 a massive subject, and like you say, yeah, it you can get misdiagnosed all the time. So, Pete, then, how did you come to have PTSD, and did you know that it was PTSD that you were suffering with? Not initially. I didn't realise more or less straight away that I had it. I witnessed a traumatic event about ten years ago. It was quite harrowing. And it was terrifying. In my life, I've experienced quite a lot of violence, as you know from the previous podcasts. Uh, most of it, what we call social violence. There's a difference between social violence and asocial violence. Okay. And most of the violence that we witness sees social violence. It's the sort of stuff you see in pubs, bars, you know, uh, road rage, anywhere there's lots of people involved. So that's really quite common. Asocial violence is normally perpetrated when there's very few people around and it seems to be a more serious level of violence because the perpetrators of asocial violence don't want any witnesses. Right. They don't want anybody that's able to stop them. Okay. Yeah. Right. So asocial violence is a much more dangerous level of violence and it manifests itself completely differently. So I've witnessed it myself, and although I'd been involved in perhaps hundreds of violence encounters at various levels, mm -hmm. that was the first time I'd experienced asocial violence. Right, okay. And it was nothing like I'd ever seen before. Yeah. It was weird, and my brain was sort of saying, this isn't like a fight. This isn't how it's supposed to happen. Yeah. He's not doing what he's supposed to do. This isn't socially acceptable. What's he doing? Right. So my, my brain, having all this experience of social violence and martial arts, was completely thrown by what was happening. And it was terrifying. Yeah. You know, so that's what set it off. The problem is when you're involved with a violent situation, it goes on and on. It's not just the event itself. Yeah. This is why any self-protection person worth his salt will put mainly his efforts into prevention and avoidance. Right. Because once violence has been carried out, there is a huge aftermath that comes after it. Right. And let me tell you, there are very, very few circumstances where it's worth it. Maybe. Apart from a self-defence situation where you are trying to defend you or a loved one, there is no justification or reason for violence. So with me, after the event, my mate was in hospital for six weeks with his injuries, which is a long time. Yeah. You know, people in car accidents aren't in there for six weeks. So he was in there a long time. He nearly died. I had to tell his mother that he'd probably be dead by morning. Oh, my goodness. I had to, I had to tell that to her face. Uh, I had um, a lot of what's called community impact, which is a part of violence that a lot of people don't really understand. The police are involved with it a lot. Because when there's violence, both the victim witnesses and the perpetrator all our friends all our relatives they probably live in your town you may or might not know them and guess what they're all gonna have a view on it and even if they have no facts whatsoever yeah they will believe who they want to believe and they will form their own judgment yes so you've got all that then, of course, a big one for me was the court case. Really? So I had to go, yeah, it was 12 months before we got to court. Wow. Because that's how long these, oh, yeah, they, court cases take a long time. 
And with COVID now, it would be longer than that. Oh it took God. a year for us to get to court. Uh, court was traumatic. I've been to, to Crown Court twice as a witness in attempt murder charges. The first one was quite traumatic because you're not looked after like they, they lead you to believe you're going to be looked after in course. So the first one was quite traumatic, but it was down in near your neck of the woods. It was down south. All right. So there wasn't any community impact. Didn't know anybody. I was actually sat six foot away from the perpetrators waiting to go into court. No police around me or protection. I had to look them in the face oh before God. I went to the courtroom. But I didn't know them. So I could sort of the other room and brush them off. But the court case I went to um, in Worcester, I knew everybody in the gallery. Oh, it, it was a combination of the victims, relatives and friends and a combination of the perpetrators, family and friends. So I knew everybody. So we've got that social anxiety that yes. we're all so scared of. Yes, yeah. Because they're social animals, and you, you'll know from your training, social anxiety is one of the biggest anxieties you can have. Yeah. That was scary. Yeah. That was almost as scary as the attack. Was it? Yeah, not quite. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. Quite, but it was very prolonged. Yeah. So if, you, if you've got PTSD from seeing um, an atrocity, You've then got a long period of time when you're going through community impact and then you've got the court case to look forward to. So it's not just the minute when the violence is happening, it's the year or so after when you've got to make witness statements, you've got to face the perpetrator's relatives when you bump into them in Tesco's, certain pubs that you don't want to go into because you know that's the pub you drank in. So there's a massive... Uh, complex world that's created after the event and all this puts this little chip in to your PTSD levels so by the time it's all gone to court and sort of been put to bed your PTSD is just off the scale right okay because you're just adding to the anxiety and the stress and the, the you know the fear that's avoidance of violence so what, what do you mean by that then when you say it's paramount so explain that to us well if you if you're in a violent encounter and you let's I'll use this phrasing because i want it to mean something um if you win the violent encounter for want of a better word if you come out on top the violence encounter okay mm -hmm. so you're not hurt yeah the other guy is you've got to explain to somebody why you've hurt him you've got all the legalities to deal with you've got the guilt of hurting someone you may have the trauma of court yeah. so it doesn't really sound much like a win does it not really not when you're not when you no. explain it like that <laughs> but if you'd have just left or not rose to it or avoided it, then you haven't got to deal with any of that. No. So the only reason ever that violence should be an option is in self-defence. That is from an ethical point of view and a legal point of view. Yes. You avoid it at all costs. I have no problem running away from violence. And I have no problem with the name calling after or... The stigma, I don't care. Yeah. I'll run as fast as my little legs will carry me. <laughs> yeah. Because I know what I know what comes after. If you lose the physical confrontation, but you're gonna be hurt or dead, and you're still gonna have the aftermath as if you've won. Yes. So there's no winners with violence ever. No. So as a self-defense instructor, my job is not just to keep people from being hurt, but it's to prevent them having to go through the aftermath. Right. Which is an area that a lot of martial arts, certainly martial arts clubs, don't really talk about. And they should, it should be on all the curriculums, avoidance at all costs. Right. This is, this is quite interesting because you take for granted the psychological effects 
of what it's going to do to you. Like you say, if you lose the battle, for instance, you could be bruised yeah. and hurt and that will heal. But psychologically, yeah. it takes a lot longer. A lot longer. And um, the worse you hurt somebody, the more questions you've got to answer to the police, the more of an interest they're going to take, you know. And a big thing with um, victims and witnesses is um, survivor guilt. Okay. Yeah, survivor guilt is normally associated with people who have been in... A, I'll give you a scenario of survivor guilt. Okay. You go on a plane journey or a coach journey, and there's a, there's a crash. Yeah. And everybody dies except you. All right? So a lot of people, rather than feeling euphoric because they've survived, yeah. they feel really guilty the fact that everyone else is dead. Yes. Okay? Which is a fairly natural response, you know, because you, you, you're going to be empathetic towards the dead, aren't you? Yeah. So, so that's fairly understandable. But with victim guilt, with crime, after you think to yourself, and this is this is a victim, not someone who's gone out as a perpetrator. This is a, a victim or a witness. You have a guilt in your mind. And what the guilt says to you, it asks you lots of questions. So it will say to you, and I had this for years, is there anything you could have done to avoid being in that situation? Yeah. It's your own fault for being there. Yeah. <laughs> Could you have done something different while it was happening? Yeah. Just after the event, could you have done something better? Could you have done something otherwise? And you feel really guilty about the things you think you should have done or could have done and didn't. Right, yes. Yeah. And it just creates so many questions. So what I did, I went on a quest if there was anything that I did that I could have done better. Right. And I started off with the physical stuff that I did. Because uh, not coming across as, you know, a hero or anything, because yeah. I certainly wasn't. But I, I managed to restrain the perpetrator for a short while while my friend could leave the building. And then I started to, well, could I have done it a better way? You know, is there a better way I could have restrained him? Could I have done something else other than restrain him? So, you know, I spoke to a lot of top physical instructors. And you know what? Most of the stuff they told me to do, if I'd have done it, I'd probably be dead. Oh, no. <laughs> the advice I was getting was pure rubbish. Really? <laughs> it was rubbish. Yeah, it was just drivel a lot of it. And I was thinking myself, well, if I did that, mate, I'd probably be dead. <laughs> Goodness. So what, what you want about? So anyway, um, eventually, I stopped trying to answer the questions. Right. Okay. And this is all to do with this is this is really useful as well for those kind souls out there who like to judge victims and witnesses. You can never judge somebody who has survived. Right. Because they've survived. Right. Okay. And I suppose it's a bit like what this other lady Michelle was saying in stress. It's like the animal brain takes over and you will do anything to survive anything. Yeah. It's kind of like yeah. you don't even know what you've done. And a lot of it's natural. Yeah. So so if you've survived, yeah, you. <laughs> you yeah. survived. What more did you need to do at that time? Yeah. You know, because the alternative is you wouldn't have survived. No. So, so that's good enough. You did what you had to do and needed to do at the time and you survived. So don't worry about all the other questions. Yeah. The scenario-based stuff that's not reality. Why does our brain naturally go there? Why do we naturally go to these weird, wonderful scenarios? I could have, should have, would have done this. I think it's just um, the conflict in our brain between our old survival mechanisms and our new higher brain function. Right, okay. You know about the tri-brain? The tri-brain? No, go on, yeah. explain that to us. The way the tri-brain works is, particularly in self-defence, you've got, 
you've got three layers of black brain. Right. You've got the old original brain, which is um, the reptilian brain. And that was how we used to function originally. So we were a bit like snakes, really, you know, and we didn't really have any emotion. And we were only driven really by eating and sex. Yeah. <laughs> that was the only function. So I'll give you an example. If I was walking through the desert and I trod on a snake, the snake would bite me. Yes. He wouldn't look at me and go, he's a big bloke. I'm not going to bite him in case he kills me. Yeah. He'd just bite me. <laughs> it's purely reactionary. And in a life or death situation, those sort of skills can help you because you'll just react without overthinking. Yes. Okay. Now, in modern day society, if you had that brain, you'd be classed as a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> no empathy, you'd have no problem doing stuff, yeah? Yeah. So it's not really useful today. Yeah. But, but then it was really useful, okay? So after that, the reptilian brain, we developed the mammalian brain. We tend to call it the monkey brain in self-protection work. And the monkey brain then develops, and it was a very emotional brain. Right. Okay. So when you see people who are drunk and getting over emotional, they're acting like big monkeys most of them. <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. It, yeah. You know, so if you see two guys fighting outside a pub, they'll stick the chests out, start banging the chests <laughs> like two big apes. So as humans, we very, very quickly drop into our emotional brain. Yes. We're very quick to go there. So we'll make very bad decisions while we're in our monkey brain. Oh, yes. Because <laughs> we're making decisions on uh, emotion rather than thought. And then our human brain is our higher brain function, which enables us as humans now to read, write, communicate, have theories on stuff. I, I can't read a book when I'm drunk. I've dropped into my monkey brain. I just haven't got the capacity in my head to. So, you know, that's why you get a lot of fights with drunk people. Because huh. uh, it reverts them to that monkey brain. So we're all in pubs going around acting like big apes. <laughs> it's a great way to look at it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, alcohol, that's why alcohol is so, so studied in self defense, the effect that alcohol has on the brain. Uh, because it drops drops you from your higher brain function into other other brain functions. So so when you've had a traumatic event, you've got all three of these brains having a big argument now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where your higher brain function saying something like, "Well, of course, you know, if we'd have studied this, we could have done this." <laughs> And then the mammalian brain, the monkey brain, is going, oh, well, I didn't want to do that. Oh. <laughs> and then your reptile brain is saying, ah, no, nah, it's all right, we've done it. <laughs> so you've got this big conflict going on in your own brain. I can actually hear that playing out in my own brain, going, my human brain saying, oh, you should have done this, and the monkey crying. <laughs> and then the snake yeah. saying, oh, well. <laughs> yeah. Just sat around the table arguing. Yeah. So, so when I realised that, I'm not saying the questions aren't still there because they probably are, but I've stopped trying to figure out the answers. Yeah. If you survived, you've done something right. Move on. Yeah. Easier said than done. It's only my opinion, but sometimes you know what? There are no answers. Well, this is going to be my question because. I am very guilty of it, this this inner mind chat that ruminates and ruminates. How do you turn that off? By, by conscious thoughts and, and realising, because as soon as you know that this argument is going on, you can be the voice of reason that steps in, in the middle of all three of them and says, come on, we've all had a drink, calm down. <laughs> this is what we're going to do. Yeah. <laughs> But it's important that you know that this conflict is going on before you can help resolve it. I love that, though. I love that because 
like you say, it's becoming aware, isn't it? Because you do, I, I do hear it going on, but then I get wrapped yeah. up in it. I'm not the voice yeah. of reason. It, it's not, it's not the devil and an angel sat on your shoulder. It's all these old brains having a conflict. But as soon as you're aware of that, you can, you can just take a slightly different view on it, can't you? Yeah, love that. Rather, than, rather than you just being confused. Yeah. So become aware of it. As soon as you hear all these conflicting voices, become aware of it yeah. and become the voice of reason. That's yeah. gold. That is amazing. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah. But you can, you can look it up quite readily, the tri-brain. I haven't gone into it in any detail. You know, I've been quite light about it, but it, it sort of explains the theory behind it. Yeah, because I, I, it's making me think of a book called The Chimp Paradox, where it's got right. the computer brain, the monkey brain, and the human brain. Right. And like, like you said, the monkey is the emotional side of it. The, hu the computer yeah. brain is, is the one that where, you know, you need information and it pulls it straight yeah. up. Then you've got the yeah, human yeah. brain, who's the logical thinker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just, that's how we operate, I'm afraid. It's good to know, though, Pete. Because like you say, mm. awareness is everything, isn't it? Because once you're aware... Yeah, you've got a better understanding of what you're dealing with rather than just thinking, am I going mad? Yeah. You realise that it's actually a natural human response. Yeah. And it just makes you feel a little bit better about yourself, doesn't it? It's making me feel better about myself. <laughs> so on that note, how has PTSD affected your life afterwards or how could people expect it to affect their lives? big change for me was socially. Right. There's a lot of places I don't go socially now because I don't want triggers. Okay, explain that then. Explain that little bit. Because I knew the perpetrator and the victim. Yes. And I don't particularly want to be around friends and family of the perpetrator. Yes, totally understand. There's certain social situations that I avoid because um, I don't want the triggers. I stopped drinking alcohol two and a half years ago. Wow. There's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, over over my lifetime, I've lost a few friends through drugs. Okay. Um, I lost one of my best friends when I was 18. I lost another one when I was 21. No, sorry about it. I lost one who was about 17, 18, one who was about 19, and then another good friend of mine committed suicide through his drug abuse when he was about 21. So I lost three three mates quite quickly, and then another one died of a heroin overdose. So when I was young, I lost quite a few friends through drug abuse. As I've got older, I've lost quite a few friends and relatives through alcohol abuse. Okay. Because alcohol kills you slower. Okay? Now, I'm not opposed to drinking. I think if you have a drink and you like a drink, nothing wrong with it, as long as it's not affecting your mental health. Yeah. And you're doing it. Reasonably, because I, I lost three friends in one year through alcohol abuse, okay. I decided I was going to have a year off. Yeah. Just say I'm having a year without alcohol. But um, I'm into two and a half years now. And, and what I've found, it's made a massive positive impact on my mental health. Really? As really, I didn't stop drinking for that purpose. No. Although, my human brain probably knew, knew that it was having an impact. Yeah. yeah the monkey liked it. So I didn't, I didn't stop it for that reason. I stopped it because I'd lost a few friends. But the um, side impact of that has been a massive improvement in my mental health. Yeah. PTSD and alcohol and drugs do not mix. Okay. Do not try to self-medicate with the booze. No. That was a downfall of mine for many years. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it'll just make things worse. You know, masking and self-medication can end up killing you. Because they are yeah. depressants as well, aren't they? You know, you can have that big sesh and then feel like shit <laughs> for days. And then you'll, anybody with anxiety will tell you that if you have, if you have a, you know, a good drink, you know, it might calm you while you're, drunk but the next day your anxiety levels will be through the roof yeah you'll have the shakes you'll have you know you're primed for panic attacks you know it puts you in a very unstable position the day after yeah 
and the, but then you'll find another drink will sort of stop that. Yeah, <laughs> ever the dog, it'll be all right. And then, and then as as it, you know, then it just goes on and on. That's so self self medication and PTSD do not mix. And um, I used to, I mean, I was a big drinker, um, only beer and stuff like that, but I was a big drinker. And all through my first trauma years of PTSD, I was drinking a lot. Right. And I, it was sort of took me through the flow of everything. You know, I was using it to get me through that initial year. Yes, yeah. But then after that, all my issues are still there. Yeah. And some that you've created along the way. <laughs> so, you know, I haven't addressed the issues. I was just using it as a mask and a way of me getting through that period. Yeah. But eventually I had to say, now I've got to face this now. How this hard is that? To say I'm going to have to face it? Um, not that difficult, to be honest. Once I've got a better understanding of, you know, where my head was at and why I was sort of uh, going through it, it made me feel a lot happier about myself by understanding how the tri-brain works, by understanding what PTSD is and understanding that it was natural and it wasn't just me being a coward. You know, once I understood that, you know, it's fairly natural, I felt a lot better about myself and, and it actually went the other way. So I went from feeling guilty about what I did and what I shouldn't do. I actually felt quite proud of myself. Yeah, yeah. Because I went from, well, hang on, I've got these two guys. One's now got a 15-year prison sentence. The other one's lying dying in bed in hospital. I've gone from that to thinking, well, hang on a minute. You know, one of them didn't get life for murder. Yeah. And the other guy's alive. And I'm alive. Yeah. So actually, this isn't as negative. Yeah. As it could have been. Yeah. So actually, we sort of did okay between us. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you did a good job as it happens. <laughs> you can, you know. So uh, yeah, that's what I was saying earlier. You can't judge people in those circumstances. And I know people will judge me and they'll judge the perpetrator and they'll judge the victim. But you, you're not in a position to judge anybody because no. you don't know what you will do in those circumstances. And I've had people say to me, oh, yeah, if I was there, Pete, I'd have done this, that, and the other. And I thought, yeah, of course you would. And then I've had other people say, well, I'd have just run away. But that works both ways, because you don't know if you'd just run away until you're there. Yeah, you don't. You may surprise yourself and jump in and save the day. Yeah. You just don't know. I just don't think we understand what we're capable of unconsciously. No, you don't know where that reptilian brain is in your conscience and how quick it will kick in. Yeah. You know, where you'll just act and think about it later. Yeah. But we're lucky to have that, though, aren't we? Because it can literally save our lives. <laughs> it's, it's a survival mechanism, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, we, we, I know we spoke about um, the fight or flight response before. And, it, and all this stuff is there to help us survive. Now, we don't live in as dangerous times as then. I'm not saying we don't live in a dangerous society, because we do, but only to a point. Yeah. But it's nothing like we lived in thousands of years ago. No. Okay? So a lot of the brain functions we've got, we rarely need. Yeah. And it's these conflicts within our brain that, help sort of escalate disorders and mental health issues and a lot of anxiety issues of a sort of fighting the flight or flight response anxiety what's anxiety it's the same thing yeah so so it's these conflicts that give us mental health issues using parts of our brains that are for the most part redundant but yeah. they're still there yeah you know so let's if so if you're spooked yeah, you get a little bit of anxiety. Initially, your brain doesn't know whether you'll be mauled to death by a saber-toothed tiger 
or it's just something that's happened in the street that's like a random sort of trigger. Yeah. But it takes time for your brain to sort of work that out. Yeah, and that's why you're kind of stuck in this, this you don't know whether to react or not. And I think that's what it is, isn't it, with our brains? They've got, it, it's there for a reason and a very good reason, but the reasons that they were made for are not there anymore. And I think we just get stuck in this frozen sort of situation. Yeah. Spent a lot of time looking at the freeze responses, obviously, because of the self-protection, self-defence side. And um, it can be a big issue for some people, the freeze response. And when I was in my situation 10 years ago, my initial response, although it was only for a couple of sec sorry, seconds, was to freeze. Right. It wasn't just to jump in. Yeah. <laughs> or to run out the door. It was a couple of seconds for my brain to process what was going on and then do something. So the freeze response, although it can be a hindrance in self-defense, is in itself a very useful tool. Okay. It's there for a reason. All these things that our brains have created over the years were there for a reason. So that actually gave me a couple of seconds to decide what strategy I was going to use. Yeah. Rather than just jump in and do something I might regret at a later date. Yeah. You know, but I'm not saying at the time I knew that. It wasn't something I did conscious, because that's the whole point. Yes. <laughs> this subconsciously without me knowing about it. It was only after that I realised why I did what I did at the time I did it. Yeah. It wasn't because I was a smart ass at the time. <laughs> I, just, I just did what, what I thought at the time. And it sort of worked out okay. It's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy what we are capable of. It's and and, yeah. and especially like well, as we're talking about PTSD, it's, it's crazy what our brains will put in front of us to keep us safe. These random yeah. scenarios that are never going to happen, but our brains telling us it will just to keep us there. The problem is with PTSD. Um, with PTSD, at one time, a lot of people said you couldn't cure it. Right. Yeah. And then a research came along to say, you can cure it. And there are people who have been cured. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's mixed reports on it. My view, and again, it's only my opinion, is once you've stepped through the looking glass, right? Yeah. There is a way home. Yeah. But you may be slightly changed. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> so you can get back, but it doesn't mean that you, you won't be unchanged in some way. So that's the way I look at PTSD. Yeah. You can certainly get home. Yeah. Um, with PTSD, what, it, what your brain does to you, it sort of reaffirms and keeps telling you what a terrible, dangerous place we live in. That's what PTSD does, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, you're always afraid some things even slight things can trigger the fear and it's really learning how to manage and control those fear levels so you can get back some rationality yes from your higher brain function that's what i struggle with <laughs> i i am scared of the smallest things and, and before like you said before i went through the looking glass i did not care for now it's like oh, can't yeah. that. but the old sarah merrick would have <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you're saying so um if you get a trigger or if you get into any situation really where you're a bit anxious or scared um there's various tools you could use to get back to a normal state. Okay. Okay. Obviously, you've got all the usual stuff, like your breathing and stuff like that. Yeah. Now, in the military, right, because they're very posh and they're very tactical, <laughs> call it combat breathing. Okay. <laughs> it's exactly the same as what you teach somebody who's getting over anxiety. Okay. It's all the box breathing and stuff like that that most people know about. But they call it combat breathing, but it's the same thing. So they, they use all that. Um, but during my self-protection training, I 
about um, seven or eight years ago, I came up with a tool and um, I've basically taught it ever since. It's now in our curriculum of all our self-defense training. Right. We put it in all our qualification courses and we put it in all our basic self-defense courses, our ladies' courses and everything. And it's, it is a military system, but it can be very easily adapted for anybody. Yeah. Okay. It works for people with PTSD and it also works very well for people with generalized anxiety, social anxiety, panic attacks. Okay. Yeah. And it's a really simple system. We even teach it to young children. Brilliant. Yeah. It's called a color code system. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No. Okay. Well, it's very, very simple. So I'll explain it to you um, in a, a simplified form of what we say to students, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and it will be quite clear to you. Okay. So there's different color codes, different levels to help explain your level of fear and anxiety, okay? So the first color code is white. Right. You should never be in code white. Okay. If you are in code white, you have no level of awareness. Right, okay. No clue what's going on around you. Yeah, you're what we call switched off. Right. Which is no good from a self-protection point of view. No, definitely not. Because you wouldn't even see a car coming down the road, let alone a potential mugger. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So unless you're asleep, or lying in front of your TV, drunk watching EastEnders. Yeah. You're never in code white. Okay, never. And if you're watching the TV, as far as I'm concerned, you shouldn't be in code white anyway. Because right. I'm quite strict with this stuff. Because when my mate was nearly stabbed to death, what was he doing? Watching the TV, yeah. Sat in his house on a Sunday night with a bottle of wine watching TV. So you should never be in code white. You're just completely switched off. So where you should be on your on you know on a daily basis is code yellow. Okay. So we're now going up the color code system. Code yellow is a normal state of awareness and anxiety. Right. For want of a better word, it's normal. Okay. Where you want to live your life. Right. You're not paranoid about anything, yeah. scared about anything. But you're not switched off. Yes, okay. So if you've got a, a normal level of awareness, if there was a change in your environment, you would see it. Yeah. So when people say things like, um, they just came out of nowhere. Yeah. No, they didn't. <laughs> yeah. It's not Star Trek. <laughs> You just maybe didn't see them, maybe. Yeah. Okay. So a normal level, but not paranoid state of awareness will help keep you safe and keep your mind level. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With no real fear. Right. Okay. Now, if you do notice a change in your environment, let's say you imagine someone's following you. Or you have a, a trigger. Yes. Or you're getting a bit of a panic attack because you're in Primark. Yeah. Whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You will then automatically go into code orange. Okay. Okay. Code orange is not panicking. It's not having a panic attack. It's not being scared. It's not being paranoid. It's just realizing that, hang on a minute, something's happened here. There's a change. Yeah. Something's changing. Maybe I, I don't have to run away yet and I don't have to start fighting, but something's happening. Yes, yeah. So in the case of panic attacks with me, when I used to get them, um, when I went into code orange, because I could feel a panic attack coming, I wouldn't just start panicking even more and going into code red. I'd say, right, I know what this is. I've had it before. I didn't die going to be okay all right let's rationalize it 
Um, and then hopefully I'll drop from orange back into yellow again. Yes. So I'll use this tool as a stepping stone going through my anxiety levels. And by, by having the internal conversation about this, hopefully you can drop back into yellow and carry on your day. Right. Okay? Yeah. So it's realising where you are, doing something rational about it, and then do something about it if you need to. Yes. So another example, if I'm walking down the road, or sort down the street, and I'm in Coachella and I'm quite happy, and then I came to a busy road, I wouldn't automatically go into code red and run off screaming. No. I'd go into orange and say, it's a road. It's a busy road. I need to be aware that busy road's dangerous. But what I'll do is I'll say, it's okay. I know the green cross code. Yeah. There's a crossing up there. Well, you know what? I can turn around and go the other way. And then I'll just drop back into yellow. Yeah. So I've managed my situation rather than just letting my panic and triggers get the better of me. Okay? Yeah. So, but if you are in orange and then your rational brain decides that you are actually in danger mm -hmm. or somebody else is in danger, then you have to go into red. Right. Red is your fight or flight. Okay. So you're running or fighting. The time for analysis has finished. Yeah. You've seen that there's a potential threat. You've managed it. Great. If you can't manage it and there is a real danger, you are running or fighting. Okay? Yeah. But what the colour code system does, it, it gives you a, a, a real tangible tool that you can use to help recognize and manage your levels of fear or anxiety yes what i loved about it the most is what you said where you can recognize that you're having this internal conversation and then you can bring yourself back down because you say to yourself right i've been here before yeah. it didn't die yeah. it was okay and just by having that conversation you can come back down that's really yeah. good so you can sort of circumnavigate the um color code now, just talking about self-defense for a second on that, yeah. it is impossible okay. It is impossible to go from white or yellow to red. Right, okay, tell me, tell me why. You, you can't do it because there's too many stages in your brain. You can't go from completely unaware to fighting. <laughs> no. You go from nothing to fighting. It doesn't happen. You have to go through... The stages in between which is your freeze response yes so that freeze response is when you are going through orange yellow and orange if you're already on yellow it's a quicker step to get to red yes because i was living at that high end of the scale and you know i was never violent or anything like that but a lot of friends and acquaintances me were really quite wary of me were they yeah, uh, because I could come across as very emotional and very aggressive quite quickly. Right, I see. With never the intent to hurt anybody, but when you're six foot two and 18 stone and you're getting emotional in the pub yeah. about stuff, people tend to take a little bit of a backward step. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. 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 And it wasn't because I was a bully, it was because I got all these things going on in my head that were very, very emotional. And all I was doing was, was showing the emotion yes. that they were seeing as aggression. Yeah. That's how it comes out, doesn't it? Yes. It comes out as aggression. And you're not really, maybe you're just scared. Yeah. Yeah. And it just comes out in that way because you don't want people to think that you're scared. And I suppose because your trauma was around you being scared, that's even worse. Yeah. So I, I, take every opportunity I can now to tell people that I was scared. Do you? Because I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not scared to admit it. You know, I wasn't scared. I was terrified. Yes. And I've got no problem admitting that. So by you admitting it then, did it kind yeah. of take the power away from it? Yeah, because I accepted it. And I should have been terrified. 
Yeah. If you're on the verge of being stabbed to death, you should be terrified. Yeah. Does it make you if, less of a man for being scared? If you're not, you're a cyborg. <laughs> yeah. And there's no shame in it's no shame in fear. It's anyone who says that they don't feel fear are either a liar or a psychopath. Yeah. I'm not saying we don't have different levels of fear. Yeah. We're all scared of different things, aren't we? Yes. But anyone who feels no fear at all is a liar or a psychopath because there's no such person. No. Yes, there isn't, is there? There isn't. There's no, everyone's scared of something. I'm scared of social media. <laughs> and, and, you know, how do you get over your fear of snakes? Hold snakes. Yeah. If you've got fear of social media, get on social media and use it. <laughs> Give it a minute. You'll be sick of flipping social media. You won't be scared. <laughs> sick of it. Sick of it. <laughs> so by exposing yourself to certain things, you can help with your fear levels. Yeah. But you'll still feel fear about something. Everyone feels fear. Yeah. If you're really aware and you're in orange, to go from orange to red really quick. So if you've got a good state of awareness, and I'm talking from a self-defense point of view now rather than a PTSD or anxiety issue, yeah. if you're already in orange and you are ready for any potential danger, to go from orange to red is really quick transition and it can help you eliminate the freeze response that you encounter with violence. That's what it was originally created for for the army. I see. But what we've found is you can actually use the same tool for managing your anxiety, stress, and PTSD levels. When you're saying it, it sounds like, because it's a natural thing that you're doing anyway, because you're assessing, reassessing, reassessing. It's like a risk assessment yeah. in your brain, isn't it? And then you have yeah. to put yourself down. It's exactly that. What happens is people with anxiety disorders and PTSD, you go into red, and you stop in red. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you, so you're living your life in code red. And it's no way to live. No. Reacting to absolutely everything. You want to be in yellow. Yellow. Yellow sounds like a nice place to be. <laughs> it's a, when I was going through my first year of PTSD, I would say I um, was living probably that year in orange. And I could very, very quickly trip into red. Yes, okay. Right, so that is all for this week, people. I'm sure um, you'll agree what an incredible guy. Um, we'll be hearing the second part of Pete's interview with PTSD next Saturday at two o'clock right here. So thank you so much, Pete, for the Colour Code system. Um, what an incredible tool. I will get that written up and put into the Facebook page for us all. Um, and I'll certainly be giving that a go myself and raising my own awareness a little more to the old snake, the monkey and the human all sat around having a few bevies. <laughs> so everybody have a great week. Uh, take care and we'll be back next Saturday. You've been listening to the It's A Crazy Life podcast. My name's Sarah and I've been your host. This podcast is dedicated to raising awareness for mental health whilst helping to end this stigma.